We're now in Exodus in the 8th chapter. The plagues have begun on Pharaoh and Egypt. This is the second of the plagues. It is the plague of the frogs that begins in verse 6, I think page 51 in your pew Bible in the Old Testament. So Aaron lifted his hand, and frogs came up out of the water and covered the land. But the magicians with their secret arts also made the frogs come up and cover Egypt. And so Pharaoh called for Moses and said, Pray for me and for my people that the frogs will leave, and I will let you and the Israelites go and worship. Moses said, I will leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your houses and your officials and your people that you may be rid of the frogs except those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, replied Pharaoh, it will be just as you have said, so that you may know that there is no one like our God. And I will pray. And the frogs will be taken from you and your officials and your people and your houses except for those who remain in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron left. And Moses cried out to God about the frogs that he had brought upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did just as Moses said. And the frogs died in the houses and in the courtyards and in the fields. And they stacked them in heaps and the land reeked. But when he saw that there was relief, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Renner and I have an inquiring mind, so immediately when I hear that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but God knew that it would happen, I start raising the question, well, was Pharaoh responsible then? Did Pharaoh really have any choice in this matter of the plagues? I notice that when you read the book of Exodus, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, but it also says God hardened his heart. And I want to know who's responsible here. I mean, that's how my mind works. But what I've learned is that's not how the Hebrew mind would have approached this passage. That's not a question they would have asked. Because in their mind, in the way they looked at the world, everyone has free will. Everyone is responsible for their life. The rabbis argued, why would God give us the Ten Commandments and the other 603 if we didn't have a choice in the matter about whether to do them or not? They would have also seen that by giving Pharaoh ten different plagues, as Audrey pointed out to the kids, Pharaoh had a number of opportunities to get on a different path. And he didn't do it. One plague would not have given him the opportunity, but ten different times he gets a choice. And he chooses against God and against the people. Hebrews, who are so attentive um, uh, Jews to the text, will have noticed that in the book of Exodus, in an equal number of times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, to the number of times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's exactly the same on both sides. It's almost as if the Bible is saying Pharaoh charted a, a course, and after a while God let him sail that course, that Pharaoh's initial Resistance became the path of his life. His character became his destiny. But I also think 
that Hebrews, before they think through things in logical fashion like we like to do, first see pictures. And here is an amazing picture in the book of Exodus of a heart that is hard, a heart that is closed off, and we'll find a heart that is heavy. That picture would have told them all they needed to know. Because in the Hebraic uh, thought, the heart is the center of all of our lives. It's the center of our emotions. It's the center of our thought. It's the center of our decisions and therefore the center of our actions. Jesus refers to this uh, when he's talking and he says, out of a good tree will come good fruit. The tree is the heart. It's the ender. And, And what happens in your life is simply a product of what's going on inside your life. So the picture that heart tells them all they need to know. It's about a a man, a ruler who is closed off. And he's closed off to God. He's closed off to the plight of the Israelite slaves. But now we find that he's also closed off to his own people. Let's look at this story for a moment this morning. Frogs. Aaron Aaron lifts his hand. God brings frogs among the people. Frogs are everywhere. What's Pharaoh's response? His response is to call on the magicians and multiply the frogs. Even more of them. If a million frogs is good, two million must be better. And they are everywhere. And that shows he has little concern for his people. And then when Moses gives him the opportunity and says, look, tell me when to pray to God so that these frogs be removed. I mean, the right answer is pray now. What does Pharaoh say? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. He wants to hold on to that last bit of power. In his arrogance, even though his people will suffer for it. And then there's a little known part that I missed, but the rabbis pick up on this. It's quite fascinating. Pharaoh says, pray for me and my people. That sounds reasonable to me. But when you see Moses, what he says to Pharaoh is, I'm going to pray for you, your houses, your officials, and your people. It's almost like Pharaoh saying, pray for me. Pray for the people so they don't revolt. But don't worry about my employees. I mean, after all, they're my employees. Don't worry about my servants. They'll get by. But Moses mentions the officials, the servants, twice. Moses is not going to leave anybody out. Pharaoh assumes, well, if you work for me, it doesn't matter. I'm the boss. You just deal with it. But that's that's not how Moses saw it. Pharaoh gets revealed as a person with a very hard heart, closed off to God, closed off to the Israelites, and closed off even to his own people. We're told after the first plague, when the Nile turns to blood, apparently the magicians repeat the trick so that all the water in Egypt is turned to blood and people are scrambling, digging, looking for water. And at the end of that section on the first plague, it says, Pharaoh turned and went back into his house unconcerned. Let them drink blood. Let them eat cake. Pharaoh, no concern. As opposed to the God of the universe, who is deeply concerned. As opposed to his servant Moses, who we'll find as we go subsequent weeks, is very compassionate and concerned. As opposed to the followers of God, who throughout their history have been deeply concerned and compassionate about their world. We serve a God... We worship God's Son, who as much as anything else could be said to be a man who cares. Someone who has compassion. There's a recent book called Who Is This Man? by John Ortberg. 
And he has an entire chapter devoted to, to uh, how the compassion of Jesus has played out through human history. And it's pretty fascinating, some of the things he says. Right from the beginning, in the early 2nd century, one of the church fathers says this. He says, uh, what we do uh, is we help the helpless. And he said, and we are branded by our opponents for our practices of loving kindness. What the early church father was saying there is, that's how we're known to this world. They look at us and they see people who care. More evidence comes up the road uh, from Baylor University where Rodney Stark has done a great deal of work about uh, looking at the expansion of Christianity uh, in the Roman Empire before Constantine ever saw a sign, remember a flaming cross allegedly, and said, by this sign you will conquer. Long before that, Christianity has a foothold in Rome, and, and Stark says, here's the reason. In 165 A.D., 135 years after Jesus, smallpox epidemic hits Rome. Everybody who can get out of Dodge gets out. Senators, generals, uh, officials, wealthy, equestrians. Uh, everyone leaves who can. The people left behind are suffering and dying with smallpox. And the Christians stay behind with them and care for them. About a century later, as Stark notes, another plague, another epidemic hits Rome in the third century. And the same thing, everybody who can afford to get out gets out. And left behind are the dying and the Christians who are caring for them. And one official marks how different this was from a plague that hit Athens centuries earlier, where Thucydides says what happened is during this plague in Athens, people were brought to the middle of the street and left to die with no one to tend to them. And they said what was different this time is the people don't die alone. There are these Christians who comfort them, and you probably won't be surprised to find out a number of Christians then in the comforting of them die as well. But long before Constantine ever says, we're all Christian, the Christianity has taken a foothold because of the compassion of its people. Go forward through history. I mean, look how many of us made donations the last a couple weeks, uh, either to the United Methodist Committee on Relief, like we did last week and you can still do, or the Red Cross. The Red Cross was founded in the 19th century by a Christian Swiss philanthropist, Jean Henry uh, Dubont. And uh, what John Henry in the 1860s was moved by the plight of soldiers on the battlefield left to cry out in pain. He couldn't stand those cries. And he began to organize to meet the needs of these soldiers. And the Red Cross was born. Malcolm Muggeridge. A few decades ago, went to visit Mother Teresa. And one of his observations as he watched Mother Teresa uh, work with the lepers was this. He said, humanists don't run leprosariums. In other words, just general good people who care about the welfare of the world, they don't usually open up ministry to lepers. It's people who have a much higher motivation and cause, like Mother Teresa. And then Ortberg talks about being in an African country um, a couple decades ago. And uh, as you probably know, in poorer countries, uh, the government doesn't keep uh, and take care of the prisoners in the prison. It's their families. If the families don't give them food, they don't eat. And he said in Ethiopia, when people were being imprisoned, the prisoners prayed for a Christian to be imprisoned with them. 
Because they knew if a Christian was imprisoned with them, the family would not only bring food for that Christian, but would bring food for everybody around that person as well. Because that's who they were. They follow a Jesus who is compassionate. They follow a God who sent Moses, and that God was compassionate. And it became evident to the Israelites, as well as to the Egyptians, that this God cared. But it struck me, would the people of Egypt ever figure out that their Pharaoh wasn't the real deal? How are they going to know that he's really not a God and he's really not a caring God? Well, my friend and colleague Scott Hare, who went to Egypt four years ago, helped me with this. It's on your bulletin. If you'll take out your bulletin cover, I want to show you something. Now, here's the disclaimer. It's not in the Bible. Don't look for it there. It's in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, chapter 125, which we normally don't quote on Sunday morning. But what it is, it's a picture of the way the Egyptians think about salvation, the way they think about gods, the way they think about the life we're supposed to live. And what happens is when you're trying to make your way into heaven or the afterlife, you come to uh, a judgment And on a judgment, there are scales, and you'll see the scales here. On one is a feather. On the other scale is your heart. And if your heart is heavy, if your heart is hard, the scale, of course, sinks. And when it sinks, there's this vicious, you can see him, terrible dog-type figure. His name is Amat, A-M-M-A-T, who devours your heart, and your existence is over. But if your heart is light and pure... And joyful, it rises, and you enter the afterlife. But as you get ready to find yourself on the scale, your heart, they ask you 42 confessions, and you have to make negative confessions. So they ask you, have you done this? And the right answer is no. I thought I'd pick a few of them out for you this morning. Here's number seven. You have to say, I have not stolen the property of God. Well, think about Pharaoh. Who does he think belongs to him who really doesn't? Number eight, I've told no lies. Really? How many times did Pharaoh say you could go and change his mind? Number 13, I've never made anyone weep. Well, remember the the Egyptians made the Israelites cry out. Number 26, I have never shut my ears to the truth. This is a Pharaoh who won't hear the truth. Number 27, I've never blasphemed against God. Number 28, I've never done violence. Look how he's oppressed the people, his people and the Israelites. Number 35, I've never stopped the flow of water. Think about the first plague. Remember that? Water turns into blood and what's Pharaoh's response? I can do that. I'll turn the rest of the water into blood. And then... um, Number 38, my favorite one for Pharaoh, I've never displayed arrogance. What is clear to me is that God worded this heaviness of heart, this hardness of heart, in such a way that even generations later, the Egyptians would be able to look at their own stuff and say, this is no God. Gods are pure. Gods care like the best of us. Pharaoh is no God. It would have been obvious that it is the God of Moses who is the God. Now the good news, of course, is for us because of Christ, there's no scale for us. When God weighs us, we are, we are found in Christ. 
uh, we are found worthy. But the other news here is that, for me, that if people want to get a glimpse of who God really is and what God's really like, they're probably going to see it in us. Oh, we could tell them stories about how God cares in the Exodus if they were only here to hear them. We could tell them about Jesus who put the little children on his knee and blessed them, who uh, took food and multiplied it to feed the hungry, who healed those who were sick, even raised the dead. But they're probably not going to get close enough to hear that story. What are they going to hear? The way we talk to them, the way we talk to the world. They probably won't get close enough to see that story. What are they going to see? The way we interact with them, the way we interact with each other, the way we interact with the world. See, here's my my problem. If our God is just the same as Pharaoh, only bigger and badder, then we've lost. If the God we show the world is just as mighty as Pharaoh, the only deal is he can harass you for eternity and Pharaoh can't, what have we won? But if our God cares deeply and individually about the plight of every person, if our God is truly a God who cares, now that's something. And we know that. But how will others know it? Probably only by looking at us. Just like the Egyptians looked at Pharaoh and they were able to see, no good. What do people see when they see us? I mean, you saw and heard the same things I heard from both sides, Christians on both sides after the election this week. When they talked to each other, did they sound like God or did they sound like Pharaoh? I ask you, what does the person who has never heard about God, has not been introduced to God, think when they watch and hear God's people interact with each other and interact with them? I don't know, but I think they think, wow, that's some Pharaoh they got. Get it wrong and I'm going to zap you. Get it wrong, your country's doomed. Really? Is that the God we want to show? They may not make it in here to hear about God. But they will hear us. They will see us. Ortberg reminds me of a famous story. I know you've heard it before, but, but I think it's so profound. It's about the Belgian priest, Father Damien. In the 19th century, he moved to Hawaii. So, I mean, so far, so good. But he moved to Hawaii and starts ministering among a leper colony. And he wants them to know about a God who cares in Jesus Christ. So every morning as he ministers with the lepers, he gets up at the start of the morning and says, God loves you, lepers. As he lives and works with them, the next morning he gets up and says, God loves you, lepers. Every day, God loves you, lepers. And then one day, Father Damien gets up and he says, God loves us, lepers. He has become one of them. And what do they know about his God? They know his God is one of them. They know his God cares. We worship God. Thank goodness we don't worship Pharaoh.